Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44 this morning. Isaiah chapter 44. been out of Isaiah for a little while, so I want to just give you some information, help you understand where we are and what's going on in this context, that Isaiah, he's writing to the southern tribe of Judah. Um, They've been taken captive, and they're in Babylon. So from chapters 41 to 48, you might say he engages in somewhat of guerrilla warfare, and that he's writing to give hope to an oppressed people, that one day in the future, a king by the name of Cyrus, not a Jewish name, a Persian who does not know God, yet God would use him to bring them out of their slavery. Chris Wright, well-known theologian, says, the second exodus, talking about this event, had a pagan for its Moses. And it's an amazing text, not just the prophecy about what King Cyrus would do 150 years before it happened, but that God would say Cyrus was his shepherd, that Cyrus, a non-believer, is anointed with his spirit to redeem his people from slavery. And when you chew on that, what that means, what it says is to us is God uses anything or anyone that he wants to bring about good for his people and glory to his name. So let's just read, and we'll start in chapter 44, verse 24, and go through 45 just a little bit. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. 
I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, sometimes I feel like we have such a small view of your capacity. Lord, who you are and what you do and how you do it. Father, it's an amazing thing that you say the right hand of the most powerful man in the world is in your hand. And that you control it and your spirit leads and guides and directs him. God, you are a God of power and authority and sovereignty. Lord, your spirit works your will throughout the earth. You use the power of the curse. Lord, you use the brokenness of our world to redeem and bring about good and glory to your people. Lord, for us, we know that there is hope in the worst of darkness, O oh God, because of who you are. Lord, I pray for every believer here today that when they leave here, they would want to worship because of the God that we worship. His size and His glory is worthy. I pray for every non-believer that you would call and draw them and they would begin to love you with all their heart. Lord, work through your word now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest, um, do you like archaeology? you like biblical archaeology? Thank you. <laughs> I, I love it. And someone said one time, I thought it was so fascinating, they said that comparing Mormonism to Christianity, they said in all the Mormon archaeological digs, they've not found one thing that has proven their books to be true. In all the Christian archaeological digs, they've not found one thing that disproves the Scripture from being true. Archaeology truly is the best friend of the Scripture. And one of the greatest Middle Eastern archaeologists was a Syrian Catholic man by the name of Rassam, who lived in the late 1800. Rassam excavated Nineveh and became quite well known for discovering the epic of Gilgamesh which most of your children read. In 1877, he returned to Nineveh and made an amazing discovery that changed how we see Isaiah. He discovered what's called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is a nine-inch clay cylinder inscribed with Akkadian language, the ancient language. It was a decree from the king, from the Persian king, shortly after he conquered Babylon in 540 B.C. And this is what it says. It indicts the Babylonian king, Nabonidus, for failing to protect and provide for the people he had captured and brought to Babylon. 
It then orders repatriation of the hostages that had been deported from their lands. So they have to go home. He doesn't stop there. He then commands royal subsidies to these people to rebuild their cities, their sanctuaries, their temples. So not only am I sending them home, but I'm sending them home with money to rebuild their cities. Now what is remarkable is that is exactly the story we find in Ezra 1, isn't it? And exactly what we see God prophesying here in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. Now it's not just vague descriptions about some unknown king, but he tells us that he will raise up a king by the name of Cyrus, who will break through the bronze gates of Babylon and deliver his people. They will return to Judah and Jerusalem and again worship the living God. And God calls the unbelieving Persian king something amazing. He says, he's my anointed shepherd who will fulfill all my purposes to bring light and calamity to the earth in order to redeem his people and eventually bring the promised Messiah that he's told us about again and again in the book of Isaiah. Now, when you read chapters 41 to 48, which deal with Cyrus, what strikes you is King Cyrus is a Persian non-believing king who worships all the idols of his day. And God chooses him to be what many call the second Moses, to lead his people out of slavery. And to do that work, he anoints him with the Holy Spirit. God brings redemption from unexpected places, doesn't he? God certainly may disapprove of idolatry, yet he can use an idolater for his own glory, and does. I think this is a stunning declaration of how God uses not just just believers, but non-believers, not just blessings, but calamity to bring about his purposes in our lives and to bring glory to his name. You see, God is bigger than our small ideas of what he can and can't use. If he used Cyrus to redeem his people from Babylon, then can he not use a non-believing accountant to fix your tax situation? Or a non-Christian grandparent to provide an education and funding for your children to go to college? You see, God is saying he created all the world for his own glory, and even though it has fallen and broken and lost, he still uses people, whether they believe or not, in amazing ways to achieve his purposes and give redemption to his people. So here's the main idea today, that God will bring redemption from unexpected places and unexpected people in your life. Okay, should we dive in? Great, I think so too. Now he is encouraging his downtrodden people by declaring he is sovereign over what happened in the past, what's happening in their lives now, and now he's telling them what's going to happen in the future. So those are the three things we're going to look at. First, God is sovereign over what happened in the past. Look at verse 24 with me in the Bible. Verse 24. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Now, I want to also look at chapter 45, verse 7, the very end. Okay, that's the beginning verse. Now look at the end. Okay? Notice those last words. I am the Lord who does all these things. You, you see that? It's a bookcase, isn't it? Or, or book endings, you might say. It's a, it's a beginning statement, and it's an ending statement that are the same. And the reason they're the same is because he has, he has a thought here. One thought. Now you might ask, okay, why is he saying, I am the Lord? Don't, don't the Jews know that? <laughs> well, you have to remember, Jews have been taken as slaves in Babylon. And in Babylon, they had their own creation story called the Enuma Elish, which tells the story of Marduk, their primary god, his rise from power, and how the earth and heavens were made. They had their own image in a temple of Marduk that they would bring out on a regular basis for the whole city to see and worship. Now, there is a clear thought here. A section that begins and ends with God declaring that He's sovereign over all things. So that He is claiming final responsibility for everything that happened in the past, in the present, and the future. Not Marduk. Now look at your scriptures. Your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. He's telling His people, remember I know that you've suffered defeat in Babylon. I know you've been dragged off to a foreign land. You've lost your home, your garden, your vineyards, your wealth. Your temple has been destroyed. The ark has been carried off. And God says, I formed you as a nation and I will redeem you. Now, if you're a Jew and you've lost everything, you're thinking, well, why should I believe him? Why not just worship Marduk? And his first argument is, because I'm sovereign over the past. I'm the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So before he tells them how he's going to redeem them, he reminds them that he is not a God made with hands. He's not part of the Babylonian group or pantheon of gods. He's not just a local deity over this valley or country. But He is the God who alone, with no help from anyone, from nothing but His own spoken word, created and spread out the heavens and spread out the earth. Now, He moves them from His sovereignty in the past to now His sovereignty in the present. And that's point two. God is sovereign over what happens in the present. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me. In your Bibles, please. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners? Who turns wise men back, makes their knowledge foolish? Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Notice what he talks about here, a knowledge, right? A foolish knowledge. Well, the Babylonian god Marduk was the son of the god Enki. And Enki was the god of wisdom and knowledge. 
And so what they're saying in Babylon is we have through our gods wisdom and knowledge. And for a Jewish slave, there would be so much pressure to be in awe of the Babylonian gods, to be in awe of their amazing temples and the wisdom and power of their priests to succumb to that. And God says, I frustrate the signs of liars. I make fools of diviners. I make their knowledge and wisdom foolish. Now, there's three types of knowledge. There's knowledge of facts, right? So you might know when the Babylonian Empire fell. That's a fact. There's a knowledge of a skill. So like Joe up here who's just reading and teaching, you might have a skill to work on eyes. And then there's a knowledge of a person, a, a personal knowledge. Now, these three are similar, and they're related, but they're different. To know a person, you must know some facts, but we can know lots of facts about a person without knowing them. God is a person, and knowledge of God always comes when he reveals it. And so what he's saying here is these priests, no matter how beautiful Ornate, mystical they appear. They're fools and they're liars and they have no knowledge of me. I I have an old friend who's become a Buddhist, renounced Christianity, and he lives on an island in the Bahamas in the forest. And he teaches now and makes his living teaching people wisdom. I want to read to you what he said In his last video, in his planted seeds, he's playing the flute over the seeds. And this is what he says. I'm calling home the seeds. I'm offering them a point of reference with the elements. If we were the seed, following a positive, stable, loving vibration would feel natural, familiar, and profoundly desirable. And after that, people post, well, that's beautiful. Your harvest will be bountiful. You see, my friends, without knowledge from God, our knowledge becomes somewhat foolish. And what we teach people as true is full of untruth, no matter how mystical, peaceful, harmonious it sounds. And so God says, look, I'm going to bring truth to you, not from them. Now look in your Bibles, verse 26. Notice his promise. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So in the face of the knowledge that they hear and in the worship that they're faced with there in Babylon, God promises that I will bring a servant. And that word is singular there. One servant. And he's speaking about Isaiah. And I will confirm his message which means what Isaiah is promising to happen will happen. And then you will know I am God. Okay? Now that brings us to the third thing, to the future. To the future. Point three. God is sovereign over the future. Verse 26 again. Who says of Jerusalem she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up the ruins. Listen, a true mark 
of God is he controls what happens and can prophesy the future. God is promising here the unexpected. The Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, they will be rebuilt from their ruins, and God's people, they're going to return from their slavery. Now, the question then is, okay, how's that going to happen? Who's going to do it? Verse 28, look in your Bibles. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying to Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. You see those words? Who says? God saying, I say, Cyrus, a king, and it's going to be an instrument of my authority. This king of Persia, who would live 150 years after Isaiah, would accomplish God's purpose to shepherd his people from slavery in Babylon to rebuild the cities of Jerusalem. And he would do it at his own expense. It's kind of like Donald Trump promising the Mexicans are going to pay for the wall. Well, the Persians paid for the temple to be rebuilt. Now, how how is this going to happen? Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Do you see the word there, anointed? It means one whom the Spirit rests. doesn't mean he's a believer, but God's Spirit is going to be upon this man to move him to accomplish God's own Will He even says his right hand, the hand of authority, is in my grasp. He's grasped it. He upholds it. And the Spirit will subdue the nations before him by loosening the belts of the kings. It's almost like saying their pants will be pulled down and they will not be able to fight. It's basically the same thing. Now he turns to Babylon which was said to have a hundred gates of bronze in their walls. In verse 2, he says, God will go before the king. He will open those gates, breaking them into pieces. In other words, God will crack Babylon open like a pearl. Verse 3, he will give the treasure of darkness and the hordes in secret places. So how's he going to pay for all this rebuilding? All the treasure in the darkness will come to you, King Cyrus. And from that, you will rebuild Jerusalem and Judah. When the archaeologist Rassam excavated Nineveh and found the cylinder of Cyrus, a decree of the king sent out, we see that God fulfilled what he promised. And after capturing Babylon, he didn't just free the slaves to go home. He paid for their temples to be rebuilt. Now, why would God use a king like Cyrus? And we'll stop here. Why would he? Why not just raise up another David? Verse 4 and 5. Look in your Bibles with me. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Me. 
God says, for my own name and for my people's redemption. Though you don't know me, means Cyrus never was a believer. God says, I will use you. Now notice, Cyrus doesn't say, here am I, God, use me. He never says, my will is surrendered to you. He was not a believer, but a king who wanted to please all the gods of the land. God did not have his permission to control his right hand or anoint him with the Holy Spirit. Nor did he know that God was leading him. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. And so God is promising, why am I doing this? So that everyone may know that there is none beside me. Stop. Okay? Was that accomplished? Did that happen when the Jews went back? Did everyone say, wow, it's the God of Israel? Did they all come swarming in to worship in Jerusalem? Well, no, it didn't. Okay, well, God says that the east and the west people are going to come and worship. Osiris declares in Ezra 1, that the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of earth. Listen, Cyrus did free all the foreign people enslaved in Babylon, and he didn't just build, rebuild one temple, he rebuilt all their temples because he wanted the favor of their gods. We have a record of this in his own words. He was a pagan politician that did not want to anger any of the gods, so he gave praise to all the deities, Okay, so how did God in this return let the whole world know He is the one true God? Well, it was this return to Jerusalem that a family from the tribe of Judah, the family of David, had a child some years later born in Bethlehem that would be the Messiah that Isaiah has been telling us about again and again and again, that would save the nations, Jesus Christ, anointed in the Spirit to be the shepherd of God's people. He would tear down the gates of sin, guilt, and shame. He would bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to Himself. And this never would have happened if Cyrus had not conquered Babylon and returned the Jews to Jerusalem. That's how that promise is fulfilled. How do we think and live this? Okay, Rusty, I I get this. I see what you're saying. I understand that prophetically, this was spoken 150 years before. God raised up a pagan king, set his spirit on it. How does that affect me? Well, God will use non-believers to bring about purposes in in your life. Listen, last few words. God's work in and outside of the church walls, He works to show the greatness of His own name and redeem your life from the worst of situations. He brings redemption and grace upon the church and believers' lives from very unexpected places. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. 
which means your neighbor's hearts, your non-believing parents' hearts or children or grandparents, your doctor's mind are all in the hands of God. And He can bring redemption from hard, non-believing places and situations to do unexpected things and bring grace in your life. So, what do we think when a non-Christian president passes legislation that is in line with biblical truth? Or a secular organization like the Lilly Foundation funds Christian endeavors? Or an atheistic widow decides to fund Christian orphanages in India? Well, we think two things. First, we think that all people are created in the image of God. And as image bearers, they're made, they can do incredible things for His glory. But second, we think that the right hand of God is not just on the kings, but all people are in His hands. And God can bring good to you from anywhere. He can make anyone your shepherd, Christian or non-Christian, because He's sovereign. And the response to you is one thing. You have a Redeemer that lives. And He's bigger than all things. And the hearts and the right hand of men and women are in His hand. He is sovereign over all things. And so, when President Trump does something that we think is good for our country and our lives, yes, we say, great. But we lift up praise to our Redeemer who is sovereign over all things. And is bringing about His purpose for His own glory and the redemption of His people through very unexpected places. Father, I I thank You that You are not bound to work just in those who submit their will to You. You are not bound to work in only believers' lives. God, You work to bring about Your kingdom in non-believers like Cyrus, who wanted to make every God happy. Yet You accomplished Your purposes. Lord, and we praise You for this prophetic word, God, that one day there would be a man named Cyrus who would restore and would pay for the building of the temple and the reestablishment of the people. And through that, all of your promises of the Messiah came. And through that, we have salvation through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, you are truly a God who is sovereign over everything. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we are your people. Praise you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.